Welcome to today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. Dan Delmar and Mike Newton with you of FL Montreal. Hello, Mike. Hey, how you doing, Dan? Excellent. How are you? Very good, thanks. Today on the program, we're going to talk about uh, a new hybrid business, a hybrid in the sense that they both have a retail location, Maguire Shoes on Saint Laurent, as well as in Toronto. Um, one coming up in New York City and a very strong online presence as well. So creating those destination locations and then making sure that your e-commerce is built out. So we'll talk about Miriam's story uh, and Maguire Shoes in a little while. And also we'll talk about doing business uh, cross-border with Ernie Furt, tax partner at FL, on the various rules and taxes you need to get into um, before you start shipping across the borders. Uh, but first, uh, thought leadership, Mike. And before we start on some topics, I thought we would uh, use this opportunity to give some uh, updates on past guests because there have been some pretty incredible successes lately. Um, where should we start? Let's start with um, with Loop, one of my favorites. Uh, Loop is the juice company that recycles uh, unwanted fruit and they um, turn it into fruit juice. And so Loop will be getting nearly $5 million from the federal and provincial governments in a project that's worth over $11 million to grow their business internationally. A really great example, Mike, of, uh, of eco-friendly entrepreneurship and li- literally taking the fruit and veggies that uh, other companies discard and, uh, and making a really great product with it. I really uh, had a huge amount of admiration for our, our, our leaders at Loop. Yeah, I think the ingenuity involved with uh, you know taking uh, taking that side of of, of call we, shall we call it the leftover uh, components and doing something with it is uh, is, is vital to uh, the continued discussion of sustainability and everything else. And you know it's it's very interesting uh, when, when we look at the conversations we've had in the past about uh, you know vegan. Uh, um, uh, articles of clothing and everything else that you know they're we're starting to get a little more into the the fruits and vegetables so i i see i kind of see this full loop getting closed at some point in this whole exercise by uh, by a lot of the things that are going on right now and marjorie also points out they make uh, one of the top gin sellers now at the saq um and they they use apparently some reused potato peels from humpty dumpty it's just incredible and the spritzers and soap also soap dog treats so they've really expanded so congrats to loop on uh, on their expansion and another recent guest update uh, mike those crazy kids over at midday squares uh, this from private capital journal they've closed a multi-million dollar financing deal led by sidhi capital with the participation of investors from Canada, the U.S., Europe, and Asia. So they're really taking their uh, Midday Squares chocolate bars uh, global. So congrats to Leslie, Nick, and Jake for uh, for their success. And uh, they're really fun marketing. If you see them on uh, on LinkedIn and on social media, they really take things to the next level with their marketing and uh, even get into um, to beefs. They've gotten to a social media beef with Hershey's. Just really, really fun, smart marketing there. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of energy that uh, that certainly uh, finds its way into into everything that they do. It's again a great example of what continues to go on in this city, despite uh, the fact that we're still trying to get people into a downtown core from a retail sector. There's a lot of really positive things that continue to go on um, that are maybe not as visible to everyone, but hopefully people are picking them up, like you said, on social media and other areas. People, uh, some of us older folks, have to remember to uh, to look at uh, at different mediums in order to to keep up to date on things. So congrats to them, and let's move on to thought leadership now. And uh, this is an interesting issue that we've never really dug into before, I think, on the show. But um, there, there are trends in business that you have to pay attention to, and then there are patterns. What is the difference, Mike, between a pattern and a trend? So a trend is basically the general direction of a price over a period of time, for example. So it's it, it's following a certain uh, certain trajectory, either up or down. 
Uh, whereas a, a pattern is usually a set of data that follows a recognizable form. Uh, and many times analysts will use this to, to, to try and find and create, you know, uh, ideas or, 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 or depict where something's going to go. Um, so, I, you know, the trend management and, and pattern management, uh, you know, has been something that's been around for a long time. Obviously, the whole AI discussion makes this now a whole new area to, to engage in. Um, you know, part of uh, part of this is how do you how do we use the technology to predict going forward? You know, are you going to predict a sales pattern? Are you going to t predict a uh, you know a, a, a new uh, general area for employees and what's going to happen? You know, I don't think you're ever going to get away from uh, the fact that human behavior is always going to be unpredictable to a certain degree. However, I think there's a lot of components of what we do that, as humans, can be predicted going forward. And I think this is where AI. Comes comes in and you know for, for a lot of things and I'm going to use the term AI and HI and HI being for human um, intelligence and uh, you know during COVID sometimes HI was an oxymoron but hey that's a whole different conversation um, you know the whole exercise right now of really trying to predict using technology but you still need to be able to analyze the data you still need to do something with it and you know if you look at all the businesses that are really trying to use the technology and the AI one thing that we are recognizing is that you need to do something when that that information is is is, is put together and I, I think that this is going to continue to work I mean for years part of my analysis internally at the office has been you know has been managing by uh, by by trends or by patterns and and, and I try and predict where we're going to go next year or next month based on a number of things. One is the seasonality of the business. Two is, uh, you know, how, how, how do you see uh, what you're doing versus what the market is doing? Uh, are the services that you are offering similar to services that are, that are trending in the market? So you should be able to use a lot of that technology in order to start looking at how to predict going forward. I think we run amok when, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, we try to rely too heavily on uh, on any of these things and uh, you know basically leave out any kind of uh, judgment or analysis in the process and and I think though that really the the key to all of this is the correlation um, you know from from AI and HI in order to be able to predict where we're going um, you know it, it's interesting because AI will, you know there, there's a myth out there that AI will accurately predict and optimize human behavior um, you know, I don't think we're there yet, uh, and I'm not sure we will get there so long as uh, we maintain our own individual thoughts. If if we lose control of that, that might be uh, where our AI comes comes in. But uh, you know, I think the, there's been a, a lot of behavioral data that, and certainly from an employer's perspective, that you try to you try to crunch uh, in order to predict. Uh, staffing behaviors in order to predict where the employment market is going to go. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things that come into play on a daily basis or, you know, once every hundred years that all of a sudden makes with that predictability uh, not so predictable at the end of the day. And I think what got people caught on a lot of issues, and it's also the fear I have as we come out of COVID, is people getting caught up again in the new set of, of trends and, 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 and data that's coming out that this will be in place for two years, five years, 10 years. I, I think you still have to use uh, the human mind and, and in analytical component in order to determine where is it that we are trying to go. I think we get caught when we lie purely in data. And I think we also get caught when we lie purely in either gut or, or uh, you know, kind of that mental capacity of doing things. So I think we need to be doing this. I think what we're going to continue to find is that the ability to use the, the AI that, that is being produced becomes a much more 
user-friendly component and is capable of uh, being integrated into our ongoing. Um, and, I, and I don't think that, I'd like to think we're close. I'm not sure how close we really are. Uh, obviously, the bigger businesses with more money to be spent on the technology growth uh, on the AI component of what's out there um, will continue to have a leg up. Uh, the smaller businesses will, you know, kind of have a trickle down effect because they just can't afford to put that kind of money into uh, into action at the end. But, uh, you know, AI is here to stay. Machine learning is here to stay. Uh, how do we increase efficiency? How do we optimize efficiency? But how do we still manage to to take into account that, you know, we are using humans and, and not forget that uh, they do see things very differently than uh, machine machine learning is uh, is producing now with time. You know, if you listen to uh, if you listen to uh, a lot of the experts, uh, the predictability of the human mind once AI really starts to gather momentum is that we may be we may be there sooner than we think. Um, kind of scares me from that perspective. I'm not sure what to take from that discussion. Um, but I think there's a lot of managers out there right now that are placing a lot of high expectations on on a lot of these tools that are existing in AI, especially with a growing number of employees working from home and moving, uh, you know, outside that 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 control or the, the typical office space. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of people kind of grasping at straws right now, trying to see, you know, uh, is the trend going to come back to office space? Are we going to have people in a downtown core? How do we use this information to predict behavior? And how do we uh, then take people working from home who the hardest part is we no longer can see anymore. The old adage was, hey, if I saw you, I could manage you. Well, you know, if I don't, uh, if I can't see you, how am I going to learn to manage either what you're doing or how you're doing it? And and build some kind of pattern from it. Uh, you know, if you had people sitting in front of you and they were working, you know, 200 hours a month and you saw that going on, it was a lot easier to predict the behavior going forward. Uh, makes makes life a lot more complicated uh, and it's certainly going to take it out of uh, out of our hands. I want to talk about futurism for a moment here, talking about AI. It's uh, it's so integral to our philosophy of communicating at, at my company, and, and I really believe firmly that uh, we're not there yet in terms of the, the AI taking full control. There's the futurist Ray Kurzweil, who's described uh, the singularity, as they call it, so which is the moment, if you will, where there are AI systems that can, can, that can take over and that can mimic humans in a convincing way. So I think most people who study this know that we're not there yet. It really is about human involvement and having um, the human touch uh, surround all these processes. And uh, over the pandemic, um, you know, we worked in telemedicine. And so that, that's one area where you really cannot rely 100% on artificial intelligence. I mean, you definitely need um, not only human empathy and the human touch in, the, in an emotional way, but you need also human fact-checking. And there are still plenty of mistakes that AI make on a regular basis. I mean, AI screens people out on social networks uh, based on the way they look or because they, you know, there might be a, they might be wearing a funny hat or something like that. So it, it's really quite early to be uh, put, entrusting your business and your operations to AI. Uh, most definitely. I think the fear factor associated with all of this is, like we said before, is that you move into an area where you rely too much and you take out the human element and the human judgment component. I mean, the the, the whole ex you know the whole discussion of self driving vehicles. I mean, the concept we're very close to it, but we can still see there's far from being perfected at this point. And telemedicine is a great example. I think telemedicine will find its uh, you know very strong use of AI. But I, I just don't see us, you know, dialing in and uh, 
um, you know, to a, calling into an office or, uh, you know, going online and, and saying, hey, you know, here's how I'm feeling today and getting a, a, an automated uh, analysis of what you are for everything. I mean, there's certain points that can be used, but um, I, I venture to say at, at, at 54 years old, I might not see uh, the full use of AI. And I've got to tell you, not sure I'm all that disappointed about that fact. I think you will, Mike. I think I think you will live to see that. Um, you know, these days you, you could take a look at a product like Fitbit, and uh, you know you could say, you know, there have been stories out there about Fitbit saving people's lives. And it's now I wouldn't I wouldn't say that Fitbit is going to save your life, of course, or anyone's life. But we're starting to get there, and and that sort of detection and that sort of uh, ongoing monitoring of one's health—that's we're we're very close to to some really major breakthroughs, I think. Most definitely, and I guess when I say it, I'm not I'm I'm not expecting to see full and total use of of AI. Uh, I guess in in my lifetime, and you know, we argue maybe it will. I mean, the exponential function of how technology has grown, and and maybe we will all of a sudden hit that one point where we've we've we figured out the uh, the perfection side of it. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great things that are being done. We see it on a daily basis. Uh, you know, I, I guess I said I'm not I'm not ready to hang up my gut feel and my trend management, uh, uh, you know, uh, cloak so quickly at this point. I think uh, I think so long as you're involved in a human environment in one way or another, I think there there has to be some judgment call. My big concern on all of this is because the younger group that comes up now is totally reliant on technology and will come up in a very different environment that judgment and, and, and gut calls, which a lot of people have used for many years to run a lot of very successful businesses, uh, may soon be a thing of the past. So, Mike, we're not quite there yet, but there are plenty of AI tools uh, which people can use to aid in their operations. I mean, one I like is called Otter, which is a transcription service. It gives you transcripts of meetings like this one. Um, another would be Calendly, which helps you schedule things really quickly. What's your favorite AI? i got to say it's still my brain. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't quite put to, I don't, I don't know if it's a question of access to data. I don't know if it's a question of, uh, you know, not necessarily trusting the system. I'm still a little bit of an old fashioned when it comes to that angle. I can't say that I have a favorite AI, uh, use out there. Uh, though that also could be my lack of ignorance at the end of the day, where in fact, I may be using AI and not even know it uh, to a certain degree. So uh, I think you got me stumped on that one then. Well, you should try Calendly. I mean, you can just give people a bunch of appointments. It's all booked. It's automated. It sends the invites. Pretty impressive. Well, I got to tell you that based on what's gone in the last two years of COVID and people using uh, my site and booking me for uh, for meetings, I'm not rushing out so quickly to use technology for that. I need a little bit of a space. Fair enough. Let's talk about a traditional business that has gone online. Uh, the shoe business, Miriam Basil mcguire the CEO and co-founder of Maguire Shoes. Miriam, welcome. Thank you for the invitation. So a very interesting hybrid business in this hybrid world. Miriam, what is Maguire Shoes? So, yeah, so at Maguire, we do iron shoes at a fair price. So that means we produce in the same iron European factories that are favorite brands that I can afford. Uh, but we sell for after price thanks to our transparent direct-to-consumer business model. So basically, the project started after years of working in the traditional footwear industry. I felt like I would visit factories around the world and I would see iron shoes being made in the same factories and lower uh, shoes, uh, lower price shoes. So I was like, the consumer has no idea of what's going on in the factory, of the pricing. So it doesn't mean that a shoe that is expensive has more quality or was made in a better factory. 
So we wanted to be more transparent in the way we do footwear. And we were inspired at the time by Everlane that disclosed their pricing. And we felt like, why should everyone do that? Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so we, we started with that in mind. And it was really for the mission of offering like good quality shoes at the best price for a consumer and cutting all the middlemen because there's a lot of middlemen in our industry. There's a guy that translates to the factory. There's also big distributor. So we wanted to go direct and we had to be patient and do it step by step. And we can discuss a bit more about it. Yeah. So the direct to consumer is, you know, obviously for, for the, for a company like Maguire is, is cuts, like you said, cuts out the middleman and, and ultimately reduces the price accordingly to, uh, to the, to the end user. But I guess, I, I guess the question is, is, you know, why is, why is this done elsewhere and how can you get away with not having that environment with that direct to consumer and, and still be able to, to make money with it? Yeah. So I think it's because there was a big shift in the last year with, um, with social media, uh, with, there's a lot of tools that appear that was making it possible for independent brand to reach your customer directly. So back in the days, the only way that you could start a footwear brand was to be distributed in as many stores as possible. There was no online sale, so you had to rely on big players to get your brand out there and get known. And then after that, you could open your own store. So, um, so that's why it didn't really exist before. And when I started uh, my footwear carrier, it was not even an option. We didn't really have an online store where I, even if I was working for a major company. So, uh, so it all appeared while I was working. And then at some point I realized I was seeing other women entrepreneurs like uh, opening Glossier in Quebec, there was uh, Sophie Boulanger that was opening Bon Luc. So I was like, there's a lot of direct consumer businesses and glasses. Uh, it started with Wobby Parker and then it all went from there. So I was like, no one is doing it in footwear. And it's a, it's a place where uh, no one knows how much it costs in production. And it was a place where there was a lot of space for us to enter because the margins are so big that it was possible to do a product that we would still make money, but that we would offer a better quality for a better price. So I feel like the reason why no one was doing it, it's because the system was working really well. People were making a lot of money. So why should you change a system that is making some people really, really rich and some factories also, like it's it's a system also based on, fa on exporting factories and countries where the you know the work is not really followed so that's why we wanted to do it in european factories and the only way to do it at, at a price that would be would reach a larger audience was to do it direct to consumer because if i i do it in the traditional market i will have to give my product to another person that will take 50 percent margin 50 to 60 like there's no rules so it can go really high and um, I think like that, the factories are more happy, our customers are more happy, but we also have like a company that treats their employee well. So we're doing a system where everyone is even and everyone profits equally. 
We should mention, by the way, that Miriam is joining us uh, from an e-commerce convention. She's uh, taken a little quiet room on the side, which uh, explains the background noise. And Mike, this this direct-to-consumer model, uh, it's interesting the, that uh, Miriam is combining that with, with of course, the on with the prestigious uh, on in-store locations in uh, in Montreal and Toronto. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Miriam and I thought the Warby Parkers of the world and, and how they've acted as disruptors in a very large, to a very large degree on on uh, in this in these environments. Um, it's it is interesting to see a retail store, and and obviously it's it's one of those interesting conversations to have when you look at what you know on your website you put your production costs you show where it goes through all of this so you know it's one thing to say you're going to go direct to consumer but when you go retail do you think there's any factors that come into play when you're trying to justify your production costs and you've got a retail store yes so i think the retail store is owned by us we we have the full control on all our price and also the the price that the the shoes are in store so i think the only way to do it is to sell only in your own retail store because if i start selling my shoes in other store then then i would have to disclose the percentage that my distributors are doing and no distributor wants that so that's why we're not selling at other stores so we're we're only selling in our mcguire store and their development um uh, we're opening one store by market so instead of opening five store by my kit, we're opening one. So we keep our costs low so that we don't raise the cost of our product also. So are you carrying less inventory because you've got the direct-to-consumer concept? So instead of having, I don't know, you know, 5,000 pairs of shoes in, in inventory, are you carrying less because you can have them into somebody's hands the next day? Uh, so what we do a lot is um, we, because we're producing in Europe, they have a turnover often of one month. So we're able to, let's say, do a first batch with not too many shoes and then see how it goes on the market. And if they all sell out in a week, we added wait lists on our site. Uh, we also, we do pre-sale to try to understand how much shoes we're going to sell because we don't get orders in advance from distributors. Hmm. We kind of have to manage how much shoes we're going to sell on our own. It, interesting because, you know, one of the biggest problems in the past and when you get out, when you got out of uh, staples, uh, you know, in terms of clothing and you got into fashion was trying to estimate what the market was going to have because the lead time to get product was so long. And if you didn't guess right, especially in a high fashion product, by the time it got to you after you reordered, it was out of style, right, in, in many of these things. So when we come back after the break, one of the things I'd like to talk to you about is the whole, you know, the, the whole supply chain and how, how this has changed anything that you're doing and, and what problems that, uh, that it continues to, to create for you. We'll talk about their interesting model, uh, about the hybrid model between online and uh, in-store in a moment. But first, one of the basics for any retailer, Mike, is, of course, supply chain, as we've been mentioning, things not arriving at the time we expect them to arrive. Uh, and that goes as well for, uh, for manufacturers and, and purchasers of raw goods, a very, very difficult thing to navigate. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, the, especially if you're dealing in an area of fashion where your season is very short, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta get things in people's hands very quickly. Um, you know, it was interesting, Miriam, that your comment before the break was that, you know, that uh, if we don't have, we'll, we'll take a few samples, we'll try, we'll see how it sells. And then there's a month or, you know, three weeks of, of lead time in order to get it back. Is that 
I'm assuming that that's under normal conditions. Right now, lead time is significantly longer. So how are you playing into that? And how do you create the loyalty or keep the buzz on a product that could be fashionable when you put it into market, but by the time you know it gets to you in three months, might not uh, might not have the same uh, pizzazz? Yeah, so so many I have so many things to say because the last year were were really challenging in terms of supply chain, uh, because like the the factories were opening closing because of COVID and then transport like became five times the price than before the pandemic, so um, so we had to navigate that and uh, one of the things that saved us was really the pre-sale. So in the low, in our lowest point at COVID, when all our store closed and we had no more revenue, we decided to launch product in pre-sale that were stuck in our factories. And this way we were able to still pay our bills on time for each month. But then the customer also became a bit more patient. So that also helped the entire process. And uh, we did design that would last. So a lot of our design it's like design that you can buy through the year. So like we try to work on the design to not make them so disposable. So it's like investment that you, it shoes all in leather made in Europe. So it's an investment that you want to keep for like maybe many years. So that also helps. And um, another thing that helps is we work with European factories. So China was really affected with transport. So we work with European factories and we pay the price to fly the product to really like lower the lead time. So by flying the product, we include it in the cost. We show how much it costs to the customer, but we're able to act more quickly. So when something is cool, we can quickly design it, fly it really fast. And we can also be faster than our competition that is much bigger that have a lot more planning because they're in the traditional market. So they cannot just bring in like single product whenever they want. So we're able to be very agile and flexible uh, this way. Yeah, I think I think we're starting to see that in a number of environments is that flexibility right now is the key to getting through on on the supply chain. Um, very interesting that, uh, you know, you, you the, your discussion of uh, being made of leather and uh, uh, long term investment and everything else. This has brought up a very interesting dialogue. And I guess it depends on what side of the fence you sit in terms of the word sustainability uh, and uh, the world that we're living in. And some people are feeling that, you know, we should be uh, vegan based, uh, uh, you know, uh, as opposed to, I guess, the traditional leather and, and, and animals. Um, I kind of get a little bit of a sense that uh, your thought process is a little different here in terms of what sustainability is. So maybe you want to share that with us. Yeah, so for sure, like we've done studies and I've been involved at university with students doing studies on materials. And for sure, leather is one of the most polluting material because um, of the animal and it's the, the, the pollution part is because the animal eats a lot of things to be able to make the product. So they, they have to eat a lot to then be able to make the leather. So for sure, it's not leather is not the most sustainable option and we're aware of it. But the thing is like the other options that exist, like I'm not sure I like them more. So it's like either, like there's a lot of uh, bags in the recently that were market in uh, vegan leather. So vegan leather have been existent existing for a really long time it's basically just pvc or pu so it's like a synthetic material 
that is plastic basically and often the life of this material will be not as long as leather so we're still like looking at options that are let's say there's the apple leather that now we're talking a lot about or the pineapple leather but sometime in production it will crack or you won't be able to do certain type of shoes so we did a vegan shoe uh, uh, last summer for the first time and funny enough it's the only shoe that we had damaged and we had to re remove them from the market because they were tearing up so like when you pay a shoe $200 you don't expect tears you know so and um, so that's why like for shoes we're working with factories that are specialized in leather and they're they've been doing that for a generation they know how to do it and with all the vegan things like a lot of people produce vegan product or and say environmental product or made with recycled material the thing is like they might be producing in the worst factory in china so it's like you're not hurting animals but you might be hurting humans but like we don't talk about this part the important is like the product is vegan so also with all this trend of um, recycled product the thing is at custom in canada no one is checking so tomorrow i can see uh, all my bags are made of recycled plastic bottles they're made in a good factory in china and uh, we're really sustainable and it's made all recycled you go to custom no one asks you question i can put the logo recycled material on everything and it can be just normal PU, the same that everyone uses, but no one will ever know. So there's no, uh, there's no one looking. So it's just a company saying like, yeah, we're doing like a great thing with these recycled material, but no one is looking where it's from, in which condition it was made. Is it really recycled? And I've seen, because I work in, in, the, in the industry and I've done consultation and I've seen brands in Canada that just say whatever they want and I I've spoke with the factory and I realized it was not recycled material it was not so like all of this make you wonder what is marketing and and what is really actually happening so before we find an actual solution that is really better for the environment that we can maybe recycle and we can maybe have a good end of life we're we're not marketing ourselves as like super sustainable and like you know so we're we're going step by step and i think as we grow we'll have more power to do more action thing i i think the key in all of this is, is finding the right balance i think you know it's it's the whole discussion we've had uh, many times in terms of recycling and when you, and you hear the stories that everybody recycles but only nine percent finds its way into the proper location the concepts and the approaches and and, and everything are right it, it's how do we get them executed at the end of the day and, and and i think we've got a long way to go as a society to finding the right balance between a lot of this yes absolutely and in my industry there's a lot of marketing and there's a lot of people saying whatever they want. And like for us that are trying to work with good factory, pay people equally. Uh, yes, we still use leather, but we're trying to use leather from better source for, and we're trying to find out where the crust of the leather come from, because that's the biggest thing with leather is the crust of the leather could come from Bangladesh, but it's finished in Italy and you like, no one will ever know. So we're trying to get to have a bit more traceability and like a dream of mine when we're bigger, I would like to follow the step of like the animal all the way to the factory 
to so people can really see what are actually the steps. And the only place we were able to do it was uh, uh, when we started the company, I sourced a factory, like a fair trade factory in Ethiopia, and I was able to see the animal. They were eaten by all the people of the villages. They were gathered by a, a broker that would bring it to a tannery. And the tannery was also the factory. So that was the only place I could have like a full vision of the process. But like other than that, it's it's pretty hard to know where the leather, the animal come from. Were they like in some cases, the, the people might not even eat the meat of the animal because a lot of people are saying like, yeah, but we eat the meat anyway, so we're using the skin. But in some cases, it's not even true. So there's a lot of, that is hidden. And as a transparent company, we're trying to get a bit more into it as we get more funding or like more power to do so. We're running out of time, Miriam, but just quickly, um, last question. In terms of how you're presenting your business to the public and, and marketing, you're, a lot of it, your business is going to be online, but you do have these key strategic retail locations, including on Saint Laurent, in Toronto, and as well, you have one coming to New York City. So describe that, that, that trend, you know, that Apple Store type of uh, uh, central, uh, I guess, high-end destination. Yeah, so before retail used to be like you had the retail store on one side and then you had the online store on the other side. The two were not talking. So if you bought something online, sometimes you couldn't re return it in store or the other way around. So we're trying to make our online experience and in-store experience as one. So the employees, uh, they're not at commission. So they don't have when they're, you're in store, you're there for the experience. You're there to see the product, touch it try as many as you can. We even design a wardrobe where you can try many products quickly uh, so that later you can decide if you buy online or if you buy in-store or you can, you can try six shoes, buy two on the day of the visit, buy two later during winter. So we're trying to make the entire experience just more uh, fluid uh, with no friction. And I think that's what's about. And the, the time where retail brand add tree store on a street you know like you used to have shoe store that would have three location on the same street in saint catherine this is over now you can go in one store to experience the brand touch a product try the the product because there's still a lot of customer that needs that and then you can buy later online and i think that's that's the future for retail and one store by location by major location not five so that's what we're doing with like Montreal, Toronto, now New York. And then we'll see online what the next location is. All right. Interesting plan. Miriam Belzil Maguire from Maguire Shoes will have her one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur on the way. But first, since they, uh, they do have such a big online component to their business, let's bring in Ernie Furt, tax partner at FL Fuller Landau, and talk about some of those cross-border tax issues, especially when selling online. Welcome back, Ernie. Thank you. I love to be here. It's so much fun. So quick pop quiz. I'm, I'm an online shoe retailer and I'm selling to, let's say, I don't know, Alaska. What's the tax rate? I have absolutely no idea, but your IT guys will have <laughs> to set it up properly in their system. Because you know what? There's tax. Shoes are interesting because all over uh, the states, there's different categories for shoes depending on where you're selling them and which jurisdiction. I think New York State has a whole bunch of little jurisdictions and there's a varying rates for shoes in all of them, depending if they're kid shoes, if they're adult shoes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it is a dog's breakfast of compliance. 
So the compliance side of things, obviously setting up businesses and and, and setting up the right structures uh, cross-border has been an age-old dilemma, uh, elusive to some. Some have it down to a sweet science. Uh, Internet came into play, confused the issue a little bit more. Um, how do you get how do you get somebody set up and and, and what are the right uh, what are the right angles to, to to set up a structure? There's no right angles. It depends where you're a resident. It depends where your money is. Because let's say your money is in a corporation. Fine. I want to go to the states. Great. Uh, depending on who you consult with, they're going to set you up in a varying types of corporations. The U.S. has a corporation called an LLC. If you're a Canadian, stay away. This is not for you because the treaty doesn't work with the LLCs. So what you should do potentially is set up a, like a regular U.S. corporation called the C Corporation, uh, which will be owned by your Canadian corporation. Now we have to have, make a decision now since we're having business in the U.S. or a foreign business. It shouldn't be owned by your Canadian operating business. You should have it on the side, either owned by you personally or alternatively owned by an alternative hold co. It's a complicated way of doing things because what you don't want to do is let's assume you have a Canadian business. Your Canadian business, one day you may sell it. You're going to be so successful, you're going to sell it to a third party and we have an enhanced capital gains exemption that's in the $900,000 range. However, if that corporation owns a U.S. corporation, you can go offside real easy and blow your capital gains exemption. So that's why you have to have the Canadian operations and the foreign operations held differently. If you go back and, and, and you know, back when I think we started to practice early in the 80s and 90s, you saw an awful lot of, you know, Canadian companies who were set up in Canada and were setting up sales companies in the U.S., right? So uh, because they did it for liability purposes. So whatever they were selling into the U.S. Uh, wouldn't come back to bite their main company in the butt. Uh, right now, your, 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 your focus is not nearly as much, I guess, on liability as it is on uh, what you're selling and where you're selling. And, and do you now have a place of business there? Well, it, it, it depends how you want to do it because, you, you know, there's different rules for federal and there's different rules for states. Unfortunately, the states do not follow the Canada-U.S. tax treaty. Federal, it does. So you can have inventory in the United States and it doesn't create a fixed place of business or a permanent establishment. However, if you have inventory in certain states, if you have employees in certain states, if you have other assets like machinery and equipment in another state, or even independent contractors in another state, that would create state nexus. Now, state nexus usually works with a three-pronged test. You have sales in the state, employees or self-employed people in the state or assets in the states. So you have to figure out where you're going with this. You have to consult with a local expert to to see if you want to set up because you can open up a a warehouse in the United States, not under your own name, but what I call a pick and pack warehouse, which is a third party, a 3PL, and you could have Nexus in that particular state. So you have to look to see where you're going to open up that 3PL. And then we complicate things dealing online with companies like Amazon because you have you want to sell in the United States easiest way put your stuff on Amazon they'll deal with the taxes and they'll deal the, the, the you know and, and they do deal with the taxes but at the end of the day because Amazon is dictating to you you have to send your inventory to varying states you're going to have nexus in all of these states and try get that report from Amazon to to know where your inventory is exactly kind of difficult 
A lot of there there are some states that are significantly used by Canadian companies, California, New York, uh, you know, representing uh, probably two of the bigger. Um, California represents a, a few interesting dilemmas. I think there's a lot of warehouses and the pick and packs in California, and a lot of people find themselves kind of sitting in uh, uh, in an uncomfortable position, uh, even with the pick and packs. Absolutely, because ca California has a minimum tax of eight hundred dollars. So that's before you even start. Uh, then if you have nexus in the state, you could be paying uh, income tax. You could be paying state uh, state sales tax. You have to watch all these things. Who Who is the user of the product? Are you selling to end users your product? Are you selling to people who are going to resell? Uh, you, you may, with New York, you're going to have to get a whole bunch of resale certificates, regardless of whether you're registered or not, just to cover yourself, to make sure that you don't have this sales tax liability. Because without those resale certificates, you could be selling to somebody who's reselling your product, and you could get caught for sales tax when you really shouldn't be. Talk to people. Plan. Don't jump. You got to be careful. You got to be smart. Ernie Fur, tax partner at FL. Thanks, Ernie. You're welcome. And as we come to the end of our show, let's turn to Miriam McGuire, the CEO, co-founder of McGuire Shoes, and ask her for her one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur, please. Yes, yeah, so I would say my one piece of advice is go work before starting a business. Gain experience before starting a business because in the actual startup culture there's a lot of pressure for like young people to be successful before the age of 30 or being a millionaire before the age of 30 but like that may not happen if you don't have experience so i feel like i had friends that started company when we finished university and i worked for 10 years before starting my business and at the end in a year or two i was able to catch up with these people so I feel sometimes it's not about don't like you shouldn't care about your age and by this age I should get I reach this milestone. I think this is all really toxic for entrepreneur, and uh, and I feel like you should get some experience at least two three years just to know in your area what is working, what is not working. You can avoid mistake. You can do mistake at other people cost. So do all of that so that when you start your business, you have the confidence also to uh, to sell your business, to talk to investors. It takes a lot of confidence on a daily basis to run a business. And I feel like if you get a bit of experience, you will have this confidence uh, to follow through uh, your business. Miriam Belzil Maguire of Maguire Shoes, thank you so much for joining us this time on Today's Entrepreneur. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. And don't forget, you can head over to todaysentrepreneur.org for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles and subscribe to the podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. We'll see you back here next week. Talk.